Hey everybody, I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Happy almost end of Orca Action Month, everybody! Today, we've got a very extra special fun episode for you. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. has been an action-y and orca-packed orca action months. Hooray! <laughs> Did everybody have fun? Yes, so much fun. Yay, June! <laughs> Hooray! Today we have an episode I've been super excited about since I came up with it. I literally, when I came up with it, lay in bed giggling to myself. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is uh, we wanted to get stories similar to the episodes we've been doing about unique uh, orca ecotypes so I reached out to everybody we knew and everybody we knew sent a story in which has never happened before so yay good job team yay everybody so our episode is oops all stories <laughs> that's right today we are bringing you an episode full of whale tales featuring unique orca ecotypes from some of our amazing storytellers uh, from around the world and it's bonkers. I'm so excited. I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> the best. This might be our best ever episode. I know. I've been so oh, so excited about it for so many yeah. months. And I've been I've got to listen to all the stories and they're so amazing. <laughs> so first off, we've have Judith, who we've had on the podcast before, who talked a great length about Icelandic orcas. That was a Ugh, great amazing. episode. Um, and this time she'll be telling a story about when she was been in Antarctica seeing type B smalls at a different Antarctica story when she saw type A killer whales as well. <gasps> oh my gosh. My name is Judith Scott and you may have heard me on one of the Whale Tales podcasts chatting about Icelandic orcas. I've worked in Iceland and do work in Iceland quite a lot with the killer whales, orcas and also I've worked quite a bit in Norway with the killer whales and there. And also I've worked in other places, South Africa and Norway. And so I have whale tales from all over the place. But today I wanted to just share with you a couple of the encounters I've been lucky enough to experience in Antarctica with the orcas there. The last two seasons I have been working for Viking expedition down in Antarctica and although whales are not something that we see all the time when we're in Antarctica, it is not the primary focus of many trips. We, of course, do encounter them down there. Most of the time it is humpbacks that we see. The humpbacks are really incredible. There are so many of them now in many of the different straits and uh, areas that you travel in Antarctica. And we sometimes see minke whales too. But of course, there are many orcas down there. And if you are lucky, uh, we do sometimes have orca encounters. The main place that you would see the orcas usually in Antarctica is called the Gurlash Strait. And this is a strait that separates uh, the uh, many islands from the main part of the peninsula on the west side, which is where most of the ships go when visiting the Antarctic Peninsula. And often in the evening, ships will slowly go up and down Gurlash Strait in between landings, the different places that we are allowed to take people ashore to go and see the historic sites or the penguins. 
And so often in the evening, we slowly go up down Gurlash. And it does have to be slow because IATO, which is the International Association for um, Tourism in Antarctica, has declared that there is a 10 knot speed limit in Gurlash Strait. And that is because there are often so many whales in there. So the main species of orca that we see in Gurlash, if you are lucky, is the type B small. There are five different ecotypes of orcas off Antarctica and the type B small is sometimes known as the Gurlash orcas because they are so regularly seen in Gurlash. So at night when we are going up and down, if I have enough energy and the weather is nice, I will often go outside in Gurlash Strait and look for the orcas. And I have seen them quite a lot of times there, but not many times have there been opportunities for us to actually stop and watch them because if they're going in the wrong direction or they're traveling too fast and things like that, we can't always see them. But during this last season, the 22-23 Antarctic season, we had two wonderful encounters in the Gurlash Strait with the Type B Gurlash orcas And one in particular was incredibly memorable. We actually had a crew spa night that night. So I was in the spa rather enjoying a relaxation after a long, long day. We tend to work really long hours in Antarctica on the ships. Um, And then all of a sudden there was a message on the tannoy to say that there were orcas seen. And we don't talk much on our ship. We don't use the the tannoy system very often. We try to make it a quiet ship so that people can appreciate this incredible scenery and this amazing place that they are lucky enough to visit. So I quickly jumped out of the swimming pool and ran to my cabin uh, and quickly got changed into, of course, lots and lots and lots of clothes in order to go outside. And I'm really glad that I did because we did decide to follow the orcas for a short time and it was the most stunningly beautiful evening with no wind and beautiful light and one of the juvenile orcas made a really close approach to the ship and went right underneath the bow and I think many of my photos taken on that evening are on one of my stories on whale tails, because really this was my greatest encounter with orcas down in Antarctica. And I have seen the type B smalls, as I said, a few other times there, but this encounter was truly spectacular, looking right down at the orca that came past us. And you can really clearly see the huge eye patch. They look so different to most other orcas in the world. These guys are really, really distinctive. Their bodies are much more grey than most other orcas. Uh, They also have this kind of greyish line, this kind of chevron line across the body uh, with these two distinctive colours on the black part of the body. And they're much more greyish. They're not pure black. This huge, huge eye patch And then also you can also see the yellow colour on the orca. Many of the orcas in Antarctica are really quite yellow compared to other orcas that you see around the world. And this is the diatoms that grow on their body. So this is um, a type of algae 
that will grow on the body of the whales down there in that cold water. And we do quite often see the orcas really, really quite yellow. So we found out, I think, a few years ago that it's believed the orca families that get covered in these diatoms down there will make occasional migrations north up to the coast around Brazil and other parts of South America. And it's believed that they only do that just to clean their bodies when they get to the warmer water. The diatoms tend to die off and then they could go back down to Antarctica nice and clean and much more black and white again before the diatoms will grow back on their body. And then the one other super memorable experience for me with orcas down in Antarctica was coming around the top of the peninsula from the eastern side of the peninsula where we don't go very often is usually chock a block with ice there. The ships can't go very far around that side of the peninsula because of the huge ice sheet there that puts out massive tabular icebergs. But we were around the corner there just uh, visiting an area and on our way back in the evening again, uh, there was a shout out that somebody had spotted black fins and we didn't have the longest encounter with them, but we did get to see some type A orcas uh, these guys look so much more like the orcas that we imagine. They're much harder to distinguish from, you know, killer whales and orcas that you would see in Iceland and Norway. They're pure black and white. Not, They don't look really anything like the type B girlash orcas. And they're also much, much bigger. They're one of the largest ecotypes of orcas in the world, the type A Antarctic orcas. And it's thought that these guys pro predominantly feed on mammals, they are known to hunt minke whales and also elephant seals. And I think it's thought possibly humpback calves as well. And we didn't see them for very long. They were just cruising along. But uh, it was really, really amazing to see a different ecotype of Antarctic killer whale because I had only seen the type B small girlash orcas before. And those ones, just to say, are... Predominantly, we think feeding on penguins in the Gurlash Strait. I've never seen them chasing penguins yet, but um, it's thought that they may also be feeding on fish there as well, because it's known that they dive quite deep uh, and the penguins generally are not that deep. So it's thought that they're feeding on both penguins and maybe fish in the Gurlash Strait. So that's my two stories about my lucky encounters with Antarctic killer whales. And I hope that there will be more to come this next Antarctic season. Thank you very much. Judith, you're the best. I know. Thank you so much, Thank you Judith, for sharing also, your amazing storytelling. Can I come visit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next up, we have a story from Patrick, who's also a regular storyteller of ours and who has sent us a bunch of stories and been on the podcast telling us a story today about California orcas in one of my favorite places in the whole wide world. Monterey Bay. So the first time I had ever seen killer whales was a truly special encounter because not only was it the first time I'd ever seen killer whales, it was an encounter with so many of them and a few pods were giving some really close looks as they passed by the boat. This was on April 21st, 
of 2018. I went out of Monterey Bay with a couple of friends, and when we got on the boat, the captain, Nancy Black, had already said she had reports of killer whales in the area, so I was already giddy with excitement. And as we were nearing the area where the killer whale pods had been seen, I could already see this tall, dark dorsal fin, and I was just ready to jump up and down. And we got to spend so many hours with these killer whales because they pretty much just hung out in the area. A couple of pods had made a kill probably late the night before or early in the morning, so there was a gray whale carcass kind of in the area, and a lot of killer whales were kind of coming in and out, feeding on the carcass. Saw quite a few birds too, including a couple of northern fulmars and many black-footed albatrosses. Some of the albatrosses were making an attempt to feed on the blubber that made its way to the surface, but the killer whales would then steal the blubber away from them. And as I mentioned before, there were several pods that we had seen that day, but the one pod that I greatly remember, and a lot of people do as well, because they're known as the friendly pod, the California 51s, including Star, her sons Orion, Bumper, and Comet. Aurora was likely in the area, but with uh, her own pod. But I remember Bumper being very easy to recognize because of, as a male, that tall dorsal fin, but also one that kind of bends over to the side with a little notch, followed by his brother Orion, who had the really tall, straight dorsal fin. And it was really cool to see them because they often made several passes often underneath the boat, very nearby, and it was very cool to get a family portrait of all of them kind of popping up at several times, and it was truly an amazing encounter because, again, we got to spend many hours with them because they would just hang out in the area, feeding, but also kind of doing some playful uh, behavior, a couple of tail lobs, tail slaps, and little mini breaches. But at one point, I remember the, the fog had picked up, and we started getting some humpback whales in the area, and the humpbacks were chasing the killer whales away from the gray carcass. This was a sort of behavior that some people believe uh, might be altruistic or for some other reason, but the humpback whales were trying to drive away the orcas from the kill that they had already had. And I had seen humpback whales before, and I've seen them uh, spout at the surface, you know, you that as they're as they take their breath but there was like this loud trumpet sound that would trumpet like sound that uh had was accompanying these encounters because it almost for not to anthropomorphize them it seemed like the humpback whales were sounding angry or displaying this sort of aggressive behavior as it was to ward off these killer whales from their carcass so the humpback whales would make several attempts to push away the killer whales but after some time, the humpback whales left, uh, but the killer whale stayed in the area. So, again, it was really cool to see the California 51s, a pod I had heard about before. And funny enough, or uh, luckily enough, four years later, on the same day, so April 21st but of 2022, the California 51s were the pod I saw in Monterey Bay again, this time with a new addition to the family, Nebula, who was a calf that was born in 2020. So Nebula was a, a young calf, and it was really great to, again, get the family portraits of these amazing orcas. So again, truly an amazing experience with one of my favorite cetaceans and animals of all time. Ugh. Ugh, I love that story, especially because it spans over a couple of years and you get to see families grow. Mm. Oh, so cute. Um. Our next story comes from Elizabeth, who is a PhD student at Dalhousie University, and 
They are studying pilot whales in eastern Canada, but their story is about orcas off the Galapagos Islands. Yay! Sorry for all the squealing. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Swanborn, a PhD student at Dalhousie University. I study decision-making in longfin pilot whales off of eastern Canada. I've been on the Whale Tales podcast once before, talking about northern bottlenose whales on the Scotian Shelf. But today I'm here to share one of my encounters with orcas in tropical waters as part of Orca Month. My story starts in February of 2014. My lab mates and I were ready to head out on a two-week research survey for sperm whales off the Galapagos Islands, aboard the Whitehead Lab's 40-foot sailboat called Bolena. Leaving from Puerto Ayora on the main island of Santa Cruz, we made our way to deeper waters where the sperm whales are often found. When I say deep, I mean deep, as in three kilometers or 3,000 meters deep. It was the middle of the hot season off the Galapagos Islands. The seas were calm, there was not a breeze to be felt, and humidity was through the roof. I always joked that we had two options during the Galapagos surveys, and that was to burn on deck or sweat buckets below. I'm not a lover of the heat, as you might realize by now. Why study sperm whales off the Galapagos Islands, you might ask? Well, this area was known historically as a rich whaling ground for the species. We have learned a lot over the decades of research on sperm whale culture by studying the different vocal clans who use these waters. We slowly started heading west for our search. Day turned to night and we talked into our bunks for the evening. Every two hours, we would switch out the person on watch, as it is important to have someone making sure that all is well on the boat and monitoring the hydrophone in case we hear sperm whales. Sometime in the middle of the night, we began to hear the telltale clicks of our focal species. The steady, beating, echolocation, that's what we use to track them acoustically. Sperm whales on our first night? Could we really be this lucky? And so the tracking began. Then, as suddenly as we started hearing them, the clicks disappeared. Silence. But out of that silence came a new sound. Calls that certainly weren't sperm whales. Perhaps they were made by one of the blackfish species, the most common in that area being the shortfin pilot whales. As the night grew long, those calls seemed to follow our westward path. Dawn rose, brilliant calm water stretched out before us, no sign of the sperm whales that we had heard last night. I remember vividly sitting in the cockpit as my lab mate went down to check on the hydrophone, which we listened to every half hour when searching for whales. He remarked that the calls seemed to have gotten a lot closer. Did I see anything? I looked ahead and then to the sides, nothing. The final search area, of course, was behind us to the stern, and I looked out towards where the hydrophone was streaming behind our vessel. Then suddenly, a sleek body arose from the waters coming towards us about 150 meters away. I rubbed my eyes. Could I have seen a white eye patch? No, that would be unlikely. Not impossible but I didn't want to be the one crying wolf if I had seen something that wasn't there. I stared into the blue. The cetacean surfaced again, and I knew with confidence that we were looking at orcas. 
a group of five of them, including an older calf, cut up to the vessel and spent the next hour or so swimming around us as we continued to the west. They did not spend much time close to the sailboat, as you sometimes see with other tropical orca encounters, but rather lingered around the periphery. Their saddle patches were faint, dorsal fins relatively unmarked, and with pelagic barnacles attached to the trailing edge. To this day, I don't know which individuals we saw. Little research has been done with the orcas off the Galapagos, though there are some scientists who are working hard to build catalogues and understand them better. Are they part of the Eastern Tropical Pacific subgroup? Are there different and undocumented ecotypes of orcas found off the Galapagos? Do they simply pass through, or are there groups who call this archipelago home? This was my first time encountering tropical orcas, but it was certainly not my last. Little did I know that five short years later I would be privileged to encounter and document Caribbean orcas off the coast of St. Vincent during a sperm whale survey along the Lesser Antilles. But that's a story for another day. While my research focuses on a close relative of an orca, the long, thin pilot whale, Orcas will always hold a special place in my heart. They were, after all, the species that first sparked my interest in cetacean research as a child. Oh, amazing. She's amazing stories. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. <laughs> amazing stories. Well, you want to be jealous. Next up, we have a story from Vanessa, who's a psychologist specializing in social emotional intelligence, which is why she's interested in orcas. She's a marine educator, naturalist, uh, speaker, and orca advocate. And her story is about some certain orcas in Argentina. Please be aware that this is a very graphic story. You can skip to about 30 minutes and 20 seconds if you want to skip the graphic story. About my experience uh, watching orcas hunting sea lions in Argentina. So it's always been a dream for me to to see these orcas with the stranding hunting technique, um, particularly because I'm half Argentinian, half Mexican. And for me, it was like, how come I've never seen the Argentinian orcas, if we can call them that way? So yeah, I finally was able to go this April, I was there March, April, and um, even though it's something very, very spectacular to see, I don't think it's for everyone. And I'm what I mean by that is um, nature is unpredictable and we all know that, right? But this is about just being hours, days and days and many, many hours sitting on the beach waiting and waiting and waiting and doing nothing because one of the ideas uh well not ideas one of the things you have to do when you are on that beach is you cannot move a lot because there are lots of sea lion pups and uh if they get scared if you scare them and they get into the water and the orcas are around and if they hunt them they sort of like people in the area sort of tell you that you are like the the, the person, the responsible, sorry, uh, I forgot the word, the responsible for that uh, puppy being killed by an orca or being haunted by an orca. So you have to be very careful, not move a lot. If you want to go to the bathroom, no, you have to kind of like go in a very slow like uh, movement, not to scare the pup. So anyways, that plus the Patagonian wind, which is super, super strong, 
that plus the cold weather you know from there uh or sometimes the super hot weather because it changes a lot so yeah it's like you arrive there and you are probably from like 7 a.m no before the sunrise uh until sometimes 4 or 5 p.m and sometimes nothing happens um but when it happens no and it happened to me and i was super lucky i know i was super super lucky to witness this because I know there's many people who have traveled from all around the world to see this and they have gone for several years and haven't watched it. And yeah, I was able to watch this. So it was one morning, it was early in the morning and we arrived at, as usual, at 7 a.m. to the beach. And probably it was not more than an hour and a half that we were waiting there that day. And um, yeah, the orcas, uh, two siblings, uh, Pau and Sheke, I can write that down for you. Uh, he, Pau is a male, Sheke is a female. Uh, they were patrolling the area. And then the pups, it was kind of high tide. Um, and the pups, uh, they were getting into the water. At this point, the pups kind of know already um, about the orca. So they're a little bit aware, a little bit more aware. So what they do before they get into the water, they put their head inside the water just to see if there's anything like close to shore no so but this time they were not really getting into the water they were all hanging out like uh like some adults lots of pups there and then all of a sudden you could see Sheke. like but it happened so fast it's just a few seconds where all this happens Sheke, uh, pow sorry pow the male the brother starts uh, patrolling the area with his huge dorsal fin which actually yeah, he's so big that he kind of alerts some of the sea lions that he's around. And then he moves away, you no, know, slowly towards to the right side. So this all happened to the left side of where I was sitting on the beach. And uh, then Sheke, all of a sudden, she arrives super fast, you no, know, and does this stranding, grabs a pop. And then she turned to the right side because that's what they do. No, usually they grab them and turn to one side. Uh, so I couldn't really see when she turned to the one side. But then she started like moving her body to go back into the ocean. No, and um, tail slapping a lot uh, against the, the sand. Then she went into the ocean with the pop. And then she she kind of threw it to her brother, uh, to Pau. And then he gave it back to her. And then she, oh, that was sad. That was sad to watch. I know it's nature, but it's hard to watch. Then she grabbed the pop and threw it a little bit, not so high, but just a little bit. And you could still see the pop was still alive moving. And uh, then, yeah, they they didn't leave. They kind of, you could tell they were sharing the pop. No, when they made the kill, no, uh, they were sharing the pop. And then they stayed for a long time, still patrolling the area. And then the rest of the family arrived. And then they made several other attempts uh, to hunt. But uh, yeah, there was no more capture that day that I saw. Uh, but what was, as I said, I know it's nature. Um, but even though it's nature, you still have empathy, right, for animals. So what was heartbreaking is that you could see like the like the moms, like the females, the sea lions, they are calling 
the pops, no, they're pops. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's what you get to see every morning, no? The moms calling the, the pops and the pops replying and then they find each other. But then you could see this day like one mom uh, calling and calling and calling a pop and having no reply and coming close to us looking for the pop. And I cannot assure that was the mom of the of the pop that Sheke took, but probably she was, you know, and that just breaks your heart no and it's it's something hard to watch but at the same time it's something so amazing to watch you know it's like nature at its biggest more powerful uh expression you know like from the ocean so i don't know it was it was just amazing and it took me a while to process what i saw because it's been a dream and when your dreams come true uh, in my case, at least, it, it takes me a while to process them. And I keep daydreaming about the situation you know, for several days. And sometimes it takes me weeks. And actually, yeah, like that picture you know, that I took of Sheke uh, hunting the pup, um, I made it my screen uh, saver in my computer. And every time I see it, I, I, I can feel, I can tell I have this huge smile in my head. And like right now, I'm just smiling, just recording this. So yeah, that was basically my super, 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 super amazing experience witnessing one of the most powerful moments from an orca. Oh, sorry, one more thing. It's just that I got really excited telling the story again. Um, just wanted to say that watching you no know, like these huge beautiful orcas that you get to see you no know, like getting their body all outside you no know, the water you no know, and and putting themselves in risk because it's it's a very vulnerable position it's also a very risky technique you no know? it's very very impressive but also like through your mind it comes like why like why are you doing this like you have plenty of other food in the ocean you no know? and uh, because they do it other marine mammals and other stuff so uh it's it it also makes you wonder you know why would they do that and when you see them practicing also that's a, another whole story <laughs> but i also got to see them practicing you know and how they teach the young ones and how even when they're practicing the young ones get stressed and they start tail slapping so hard and like four members of the family are around them and then right away they go and help that member of the family to go back to the ocean like that whole technique it's it's insane no it's insane and the big question is why why would they do it is it that that baby sea like baby sea lions they are so good so delicious no? <laughs> that, that that's why they do it or and i just want to add that i was super grateful because i know i was super lucky uh and i'm very yeah so i said i'm very grateful with the ocean for giving me this amazing sighting vanessa also gave us some information on these individuals uh apologies for any pronunciation but um shikay which means jewel in um the native uh, Argentinian language is 15 years old and her older brother Pau is 18 years old. Oh, so cool. Just oh so, oh, one day. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I can't, I don't even know what I'd do with myself. I don't see that. I so know. Cool. That was so good. That's a wrap on Orca Action Month 2023. Thank you for joining us for our second year of doing extra, extra episodes. We always have fun doing these mini episodes for you, sharing and learning new orca knowledge uh before we go we want to take a quick moment to tell you about one of the ways you can support our podcast and everything we do at whale tells 
You can join us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash whaletales. You can join us for a dollar a month at the porpoise level, $5 a month at the dolphin level, or $10 a month at the whale level. And every level comes with a variety of perks. For example, this month, possibly already there by the time you see get this story, uh, get this podcast, there is a bonus extra story that's available for all patrons, and we're very excited. Yeah. Oops, 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 even more stories. More stories. We ran out of room. (laughs) (laughs) And if you can't support us financially, we completely understand. Thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for celebrating Orca Action Month with us. Thank you for listening to all of our little mini episodes this month. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. We love hearing from you. It really is the best part of our days when we get feedback or comments or tweets or any other kind of way that you want to communicate with us we squee with delight me at maybe a higher decibel (laughs) (laughs) and and it really just means so much to us so please visit our website whale-tales.org where you can find links to all of our social media handles so that you can drop us a line and let us know how you're feeling about what we do here at whale tales while you're on our website you can also find all the ways that you can subscribe to the podcast and read over 1200 whale dolphin and porpoise stories like 500 of them are about killer whales and all I think all the stories that you heard on the podcast today will also be there because mm-hmm. um, Lindsay's amazing. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, well, that's whale-tales.org. Tales like the stories, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean in the wild, it doesn't have to be something from like remote regions of Antarctica, any cetacean, we would love to add your story to our library. Click on the share link on our website. You can contact us on social media at whaletales underscore org on Instagram, or you can email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible cetacean encounter. Finally, we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples and the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, as well as the homelands of the Tawasin First Nation. We will be back next month with our regular format. So we thank you for joining us for all of these extra mini episodes this month. But this is a little bit more work than we (laughs) usually have capacity for. So we'll be back with just one episode next month. But it is going to be a great one. So in the meantime, thank you for listening, for supporting us. And we hope you have a whaley great day.